Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, you'll find the notes in the bulletin, and the text is printed on the back side of the notes in case you have a Bible with you. Luke chapter 12. And then you'll remember as we've returned to our study of Luke after a six-week break, um, we, we jumped back into those events that took place immediately after Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees in the home of the Pharisee at the end of chapter 11. And there Jesus leveled charge after charge, woe after woe upon the Pharisees and the lawyers. But chief among those charges were hypocrisy and greed. He he unmasked these would-be holy religious leaders, charged them with hypocrisy. They're like whitewashed tombs. They're like a cup that is clean and shiny on the outside and inside is filled with dead man's bones. They're filled with greed and avarice. And leaving that, the, the Pharisees escalate their game. We picked that up in verse 53 of chapter 11. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say, literally hunting him, the Greek. Now, Jesus, for his part, now escalates as well. And so chapter 12 began with Jesus addressing his disciples in the context of many thousands upon thousands of people, so much so that we're told that they were in danger of being trampled. And Jesus opened up with a warning in verse 1, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He warns his disciples, and this is a common feature of Jesus in Luke's gospel, teaching a subset, the disciples, in the presence and hearing of others, the implication and invitation for the crowds to become disciples. And for those disciples, Jesus is laying out the dangers that will beset their discipleship. Because remember, the disciples, not the 12, but a generic term, is a group that's changing. People are entering. People are leaving. Some of these men will make it to the end, not all. And so the first warning Jesus gives is against hypocrisy. And we saw last week how we we can't be fake in our faith. We can't be fake in what we commit ourselves after. And Jesus warns them that unless there is a sincerity to their faith, they will not confess the Son before men, and consequently the Son will not confess them before the angels of God. And he brings in a Trinitarian warning and encouragement for, for genuineness, what's called um, consistency or integrity, that what's on the outside matches the inside, that they should fear God the Father, that they should confess Christ the Son, and that they should not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. All three members of the Trinity brought to bear. The stakes couldn't be higher. This is about forgiveness. This is about Christ owning you and me when we stand before God's throne. And speaking about this and and telling them that if they're faithful, they will be persecuted. They will be dragged before courts. Verse 11, they will bring you before the synagogues and rulers and authorities. Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what to say. This is heavy teaching. Expect persecution. It's coming. You must not fall away during it. You must be faithful. God, through His Spirit, will enable you to endure. And as Jesus is giving this teaching, a voice comes from the crowd. Let's pick up and read our text, starting in verse 13. That's the context. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, Who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, 
This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Probably a well-known parable, and yet I think this is a very challenging passage. This is the, the first of an extended teaching that Jesus gives on money and our relationship to it. And we'll look this week at the rich fool, and next week he will continue on this topic. And it is challenging because we live in a rich country, and we are a rich people. You may not think that you are rich, but if you have the things you need, food, clothing, clothes, and you put yourself next to the people in the entire world, you're doing well. If you have a, a smartphone, trust me, you're in, the, you're in the top tier of wealth, both in the history of the planet and also just broadly of all the people living on planet Earth. We, we live in a time of leisure, leisure activities. This is a, this is a challenging message. This is a time... I think that we should listen to this as Jesus now gives a second warning. Notice in this passage, he gives a second great warning. So the first was in verse 1, take care or beware the leaven of the Pharisees here. In verse 15, take care and be on your guard. So Jesus is going to introduce a second great stumbling block, temptation, danger for would-be disciples. And it all starts with a selfish request, a selfish Request. Now the, the disjunct here is is huge. I, I don't know how this guy was listening to Jesus talking about fearing God the Father who can cast body and soul into hell, confessing Christ before men, even in the face of persecution, lest Christ not confess ye before the angels, not blaspheming the Spirit, but trusting in the Spirit to equip and empower you to confess Him when they drag you before men in courts. And this guy is tracking, he says, but teacher, tell my brother to share the inheritance. <laughs> the cognitive dissonance is amazing, and yet Jesus will take this interruption and he will fold it into his teaching. He will use it as an illustration. So let's look at the selfish request, verses 13 and 14. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Now, I want you to note a few things here. This man is unnamed. He's coming from the crowd, not from the disciples. And this man, somehow, this is his great concern, and we're seeing where his heart is. Jesus has just talked about a Trinitarian motivation for perseverance, confession, and hardship, and persecution. This guy wants his share of the inheritance. And he calls Jesus teacher, and yet he commands him. He commands him. Notice he doesn't lay out a case. He doesn't give his reasons. He just wants Jesus to act for him. He wants Jesus presumably as some sort of rabbi or public figure or leader, to, to, to come down on his side. He just tells him, Teacher, tell my brother, share the inheritance with me. Probably this is a younger brother, because according to the Mosaic Law, the older brother would get the discharge of the father's estate. We get a double share of the inheritance, and, and he would be managing it. So most likely here is a younger brother, unsatisfied with his older brother's handling of the estate. We don't know whether he has a just Grievance or an unjust grievance. We don't know whether his complaint is righteous or wrong. What we do see in Luke and the way he tells the story shows us this man's concern for his inheritance is, is disproportionate to what's going on. How can this be on his mind as Jesus is teaching the things he has just taught? How can that be fitting or appropriate? In the face of Jesus' teaching, his concern is for Money. His concern is for money. That, that's really the problem. Um, I, I don't think it's fair for us to conclude this guy is trying to rip his brother off. He, he may have an entirely just complaint. And I know people who've been, who've been cheated in wills, cheated in issues of inheritance. That can be painful. But as Jesus warns his listeners, his point is not... This, this man, you shouldn't want inheritance. It's the, it's the desire that consumes. I mean, a challenge for us would be, you're here this morning, and yet I'd be willing to wager that some here, the, the issues of money, job promotion, 
are on your mind even now. And, and that is likewise not fitting. Here is Jesus, and here for us is Jesus' word. And yet this man is just concerned with money. Notice that Jesus refuses to arbitrate for him. Jesus refuses to arbitrate for him. He says to him, and this is kind of a, a curt response, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? He's actually referencing the event where, where Moses tries to um, arbitrate between two Israelites who are struggling in Egypt, and one of them turns to him and says, um, <clears throat> who made you a prince or a judge over us? Do you mean to kill us as you killed the Egyptian? And what Jesus is indicating is that this isn't the type of kingdom he's primarily come to instill. He's coming to give a spiritual kingdom. And the Israelites in Jesus' day were looking for a Messiah who is geopolitical, someone who would push away the Romans. And this man is looking for someone who will give him justice here and now on earth. And that is not part of Jesus' mission in his incarnation. That is not what he's focusing on. And he steps aside. This, is, this isn't what I'm here to do. Interestingly, um, it was in attempting to adjudicate an inheritance dispute among the counts of Mansfield that Martin Luther died of a heart attack in Esleben. So Jesus may have you know, dodged a bullet here. Those can, be, those can be contentious and difficult and challenging. And Jesus refuses to deal with it. There are judges in Israel. There are elders. There are rabbis. There are people who can handle this. If, if there's a wrong being done, presumably there are people to um, step in. No, this guy's really wanting to bring the big guns. He wants to be able to say to his brother, Jesus said, you need to share the inheritance. But then that leaves Jesus as a masterful teacher, even though this interrupts him. He's teaching his disciples, some voice in the crowd. He folds this into his teaching. And in fact, we'll develop this all the way through verse 34. And then he brings a second great warning. It's as if this man and his overly consumed with money attitude is a great illustration. Imagine the man was kind of disappointed. Not only does he not get his request, he actually becomes an object lesson as Jesus goes on to give a sober warning. A sober warning. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And this warning really governs all the way down through verse 34. It's, it's similar to the first warning he gave in verse 1, the leaven of the hypocrisies, but this is actually a greater warning. In verse 1, he says, beware. Here, it's not only beware or take care, but also be on your guard. There's two commands. Be aware of this danger. We need to be aware of the danger of, of covetousness. Additionally, we need to actively be on our guard against it. It's not simply enough to, to know that it can be there. We've, we've got to take, if we're being obedient here, we need to take measures to guard ourselves from it. The implication, this may even be a greater temptation and a greater snare than hypocrisy. So the blank here, beware all forms of coveting. Coveting, literally the Greek means the having more, or the having more desire, the desire for more. Rockefeller was one of the world's richest men and the first ever American billionaire. And considering that he was a billionaire in the early 1900s, he's still considered as the richest person in modern history. When a reporter asked him, how much money is enough? He responded, just a little more. That's the attitude. The desire for more as opposed to contentment. This is coveting. This is what is singled out in the Decalogue and the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. In Ephesians, turn, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul expands upon this concept, helping give us more context of what is meant by coveting. And its significance, this desire for more, this lack of contentment with what we have, that is the problem. The man may have a just cause and a just complaint, but it's his desire for more that makes him not even interested in what Jesus is saying that demonstrates this is a problem. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, we'll pick it up in verse 3. And and note what Paul groups with coveting. Notice the different displays of coveting. It doesn't have to be money. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. You can understand in a sense how lust is the desire for more than what you have a right to, more than what you have. It's just not money that you're desiring. It's a sense of coveting can be linked up with that. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. The opposite of coveting is being grateful, thankful for what you have. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You get what Paul just said? Paul just said, you can't be a covetous person and go to heaven. That's what he said. Anyone who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then verse 6, when Paul warns you, don't let people talk you out of this, he's anticipating that we'll say, no, 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 that's okay. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's a big deal. This is why Jesus singles this out. He's not condemning having things. Specifically, coveting is the desire for more things, a lack of contentment with what we have. And he's right to warn us, to be aware of it, and to guard ourselves against it. To guard ourselves against it. that's That's the command Beware, be on your guard against discontent, the desire for more. And then he gives a reason, right? Because, or for, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, coveting stems from an inordinate concern with the physical here and now world. And ultimately, what Jesus is linking, the logic here is this, that coveting tempts us into practical atheism. Coveting tempts us into practical atheism. Here's what I mean. As we look at the bright, shiny things of this world, and as our heart grows in its desire for them, what do we forget? What does Jesus say here we forget? We forget that life is more than what we can see and touch and feel here. There's a life after this. And as greed and coveting gets a grip on our heart, we become practical atheists. We act like all that matters is this life, the here and the now. It leads to practical atheism. Turn to the other end of the Bible to Deuteronomy. I'll I'll show you how that works. Deuteronomy chapter 8. That's the logic. Jesus is giving a reason. He doesn't just give the command. He says, don't do this because your life is more than your possessions. Well, not even more. It doesn't consist of your possessions. What's the implication? Coveting is lying to you, telling you no. No, your, your life is your stuff. Your life is your possessions. Which is why coveting leads to practical atheism. Look at Deuteronomy 8. We'll pick it up in verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I commanded you, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. You forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest in your heart you say, my power and my might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that it may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. God warned the Israelites before going into the land, you're going to have prosperity, guys. You're going to have food, you're going to have multiplied crops, multiplied gold, multiplied silver. You're going to have houses, no longer living in tents. And there's going to be a great temptation in that context to forget God. 
Because we start to believe this is what matters. We start to believe this is all there is. Coveting tempts us into practical atheism. Secondly, coveting stems from the love of the world. And again, these are closely related. One, thinking this world is all there is. The second, loving this world and what it is. And we get stark, stark warnings in the New Testament about this. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is a stark warning. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. By the way, that's keying off of the three statements that were said when Eve looked at the fruit in the garden. It was beautiful. Delight to the eyes. It was desirous to make one wise. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Or James 4, 2 through 4, linking again this, this coveting with idolatry. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So James here connects coveting and loving the world and then says this, therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That is the anti-gospel. The gospel announces you can have peace with God. Coveting and loving the world announces you can be God's enemy. James says that clear as day. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So Jesus' warning, I hope we grasp its significance. Now, it's interesting about this parable of the rich man is I don't think the parable primarily demonstrates coveting. I think there might be a little bit in there. I don't think, if you look through it, where's, where's this guy being coveting? He just happens to have a bumper crop. His dilemma is, what will I do with the bumper crop? He's not looking at someone else's stuff and coveting. He's not looking and being discontent. He's dealing with hitting jackpot. I, I think the point of the parable is not primarily to show us an ugly, ugly picture of coveting, but rather to show us the ground that Jesus gives for why we shouldn't covet. Remember, Jesus says, beware, be on your guard against all forms of coveting, for because your life doesn't consist of your possessions. The parable, I think, demonstrates that. Let me show you how your life doesn't consist of possessions. And, and here's, I think, the implication. that The way to fight coveting is to really believe the reality of the coming life and the, the transient nature of this life. You've got to put that in front of your eyes. You've got to remember that that's how you start cutting at coveting. If you're just staring at the things of this world, you'll have an awfully hard time remembering, believing the world to come, the judgment to come, the life to come. So the parable of the rich fool demonstrates primarily the, the second statement Jesus makes. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Which brings us thirdly to a shocking example. So we've got a selfish request, a sober warning, a shocking example. Shocking example. And here's the parable. He told them a parable, verse 16, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. They thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. Things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. It's a shocking example. We look at this in five points. First, the rich man's dilemma. 
the rich man's dilemma. Now, interestingly, the way Jesus begins this parable is, is, is interesting. He doesn't say, um, he says the land produced. Not a rich man had a great crop. It's, it's focusing, I think, initially that what this rich man gets, this windfall he gets, isn't directly a result of his own work, ingenuity, cleverness. The land produced. I think that even might be a tie-in to this notion of inheritance because ultimately, as farmers know, they can, they can plow and they can, they can put the pesticides down and they can plant the seed, but you don't get to control ultimately how big the crop is. It depends on too many things that only God controls, like rain and temperature and other things. So this man receives almost like an inheritance, a windfall. He does his normal work. He, he does his normal, presumably his normal Sowing, and yet this year is a super abundant harvest. Like a gift from God. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he said to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? By the way, the words I and my occur 12 times in these next few verses. It dominates it. As this man speaks to himself, he holds an inner discussion, and, and the word that keeps showing up in his inner discussion is I, 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 my, my, my. Gives you some sort of insight into what type of man this person is. He has a bumper crop so great that he cannot store it all. He's got to consider his options. Well, what are your options when you're, when you're a farmer and you have too much grain to store? Well, you can sell some of it off, right? I'll sell off what I can't store, he could build more barns, right? Those are some options. This is his dilemma. Notice he's already rich. This isn't somebody becoming rich. This is a rich man getting richer. You know what they say? Mo money, mo problems. And he's got this dilemma. And I know this is the type of dilemma many of us wish we could. I wish I had problems like this. He's got this dilemma. What am I going to do? Notice what doesn't come into his head. Giving, being generous, helping the poor. I'm giving to, to the temple or to the priests. Nope, he's just, what am I going to do with this problem? i got too much crops, this windfall. Which leads then to the rich man's decision. The rich man's decision. He, he solves his dilemma. He says, I will do this, verse 18. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. So the, the reason I think you would do this is if you build more barns, you're covering up more of your ground. This ground has just proven itself to be exceptionally fertile, producing a huge yield. So you don't want to eat up more of your, your ground that you can grow crops with. You just rebuild your barns to store it. Now, I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with this. This is good stewardship. This is one of the valid options of what you can do when you have a bumper crop. He's, gonna, he's going to replace his barns, and store all of his grains. But notice, not just his grain, but his goods. This ties in with the emphasis of more than we need, of wanting more. This man has so many possessions, he, he, he not only is going to store his grain, but his goods, presumably the ones that don't fit in his house. And, and we live in a world like that today, don't we? Just, just a few miles up the street is what? Storage. Because we live in a culture where we buy and we buy and we get and we get and we get. And we end up with so much stuff that many of us can't even store it all in our houses, so we rent storage space. Yes, I know that's not the only reason storage space exists. We live in a, in a, in a world, the richest people in the richest country, in the richest time in the history of the world, and our country is hopelessly in debt, both nationally and individually. And I say this with fingers pointing back at myself. I have consumer debt as well. This is a very convicting passage. Do you realize that the average household in America is $16,748 in consumer credit debt? You think maybe we have a problem with wanting more than we need? And we've got so much stuff, we're renting spaces to put our stuff that we can't fit in our house. That's what this guy's doing. Here's the first storage Space, right? He's got his barns for his grain and his goods. Things that can't fit in his house. Now again, nothing fundamentally wrong with that in and of itself. 
It's the next statement he makes that reveals the corruption in his heart. The rich man's declaration. The rich man's declaration. So he's made his decision. He had a dilemma. What am I going to do? He comes to a decision. I'm going to tear down my barns, build new barns. And now in light of that, he has something to say to himself. Verse 19, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So he he gets through his dilemma, he makes his decision, and now here is his declaration to himself. Notice again, as he thinks there's no one else is in view. This, this presumably, I mean, this is a parable. You don't want to push him too far. He's not even having a discussion with financial advisors or his wife and his family. This, is, this guy's figuring it all out. It's all revolving around him. But here's what's important. Here's what's important. This man finds peace and security in his possessions. He finds peace and security in his possessions. Possessions. What's the, what's the first thing he tells his soul? Relax. Don't be anxious. What's that mean? Find peace. Shalom. Stop worrying. Don't be anxious. Now, Jesus has just actually told his disciples not to be anxious a little earlier. Verse 11 When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious. Why? Because God's Spirit will give you what you need to know how to speak when you're in that situation. Here is the materialist gospel. Materialist gospel says when you've got enough stuff, you can be at peace. Notice he was rich, wasn't at peace. Because we're still always looking for that little more, that little more, that little more, that little more. Now, the rich man's richer still. Now he finally, okay, now he can be at peace. Why? Because his future is set. There's no, there's no anxiety about what will happen. Normally, farmers live with the concern of a drought. A drought can destroy you. The crops fail to yield. He's got enough stuff here. He can, he can weather a drought. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. He sees this excess of goods and excess of property as, as, as a validation and the reason for him not to do more work, not to do ministry, but to just enjoy himself. That's the second point. He views his possessions as only for his own pleasure. Only for his own pleasure. This is the materialist gospel. When you've got enough stuff, then you can enjoy yourself. When you have to stop, when you can stop, when you have enough stuff that you can stop worrying about next year, the year after that, the year after that, the year after that, then you're sick said then you're secure. Then you can be at peace. Then you can enjoy yourself. Then you can live the good life. Sound familiar? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 makes it clear this mantra, this motto, familiar to the ancient world, eat, drink, and be merry, is the atheist gospel. In fact, he makes it clear that such a way of thinking is the only logical conclusion if there is no resurrection. In fact, my article in The Messenger this week intersects with that. It says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's, just, that's the best you can hope for. If there is no afterlife, there is no resurrection, the best you can hope for is to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This man has the materialist gospel on his lips. He preaches it to himself. God has a different response. God has a different response. We get the rich man's damnation. The rich man's damnation. This is really the point of the parable. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. The things you have prepared, whose will they be? So in this parable, God shows up this man has just spoken to himself. He's just preached a gospel to himself, good news to himself. God contradicts all of that, calls him a fool. And this is really a fool in the true biblical sense of the word fool. Like Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Here is a man making his plans with his eyes set firmly on the here and the now only. 
The Apostle Paul, as I said, in 1 Corinthians 15, makes it clear. Hey, if there is no resurrection, this guy has got the best possible plan you can have. Let us eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow we die. However, there is a resurrection. There is a life after this. And in light of that, God calls him a fool. See, he thinks he has many, many years, right? And you see that even in his own statement to himself. You have goods laid up for many years. But he doesn't have many years, does he? He doesn't even have many hours. That night, he's going to die. That night, he's going to stand before God. Your soul is required of you. The things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's actually linking back to Ecclesiastes. Um, Solomon, who was one of the richest men on earth, being rich is not a sin. It's wanting riches and what you do with your money that matters. But Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes 2:18 to 19. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who comes after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he'll be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. This man with all of his plans, somebody else is going to get his stuff because there are no U-Hauls behind hearses, are there? I mean, the Egyptians got as close as you could get. You try to bury your stuff with you, but eventually the grave robbers show up and liberate your belongings. You can't take it with you. You can send it ahead, but you can't take it with you. And that's really kind of the point here in this, in this parable. We see that his wealth is useless in judgment. His wealth is useless in judgment. Proverbs 10.2 says this, Treasure gained by wickedness does not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. You stand before God, the size of your bank account, the house you lived in, will be of no significance positively. It might possibly bring greater condemnation, possibly. There's no justification by zeros on your bank account. Riches are useless in the face of judgment. Now, Jesus has just been speaking about this judgment with the issue of will the son confess you or not? When you stand before God, will the son say that was one of mine, that that one is part of my flock? And Jesus makes it clear. Jesus' confession of you to the father before the angels of God is not an issue of how much money you have. It's an issue of your confession of him, your fidelity and faithfulness to him. Verse 8, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge whoever before the angels of God. The one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. This man hasn't worried about any of that stuff. He's just got his possessions. He's got his nice life. He's relaxed, eat, drink, be merry, and then he dies. His life is required of him. His wealth is useless in judgment. Turn back to Luke 9. Um, Jesus makes a similar point. 9.25. Actually, start in 24. Interestingly, linking these same notions together about money, this life, the next life, confession of Christ. 9.24. For whosoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And here's what he's saying. What you're willing to do with this life will determine the next life. If all you're doing is clinging to and holding on to this life, you want to save this life, meaning I want to avoid danger, I want to avoid discomfort, I want to avoid suffering, I want to avoid need and want to put it positively, I want more. You'll lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The people who are pouring their lives out, pouring their, their bank accounts out, pouring their possessions out, pouring themselves out, they lose their life in this life, will save it in the next. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? This guy just has some really big silos with his grain and his goods. 
Well, let's extrapolate even further. You get the whole world. What does it profit a whole man? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. These are the temptations there to face us from being true disciples. I want this world's stuff, and I want more of it. And I want security and the comfort and the ease of mind and the peace that I have when I know that I've got my money and my insurance and I've got my retirement all set up. Not that any of those things are wrong, but when they become our gospel, is they will give you peace. Without them, you feel really nervous. Then, then we know something's wrong is going on. Something wrong is going on. God calls him a fool. His wealth is useless in judgment. See the rich man's damnation. I want to read to you from Psalm 39. Makes a similar point. Psalm 39, 4 through 6. It's an interesting prayer. And I think as we round the corner to application, it might be a good prayer for us to consider. O oh Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. It's a really interesting prayer. You ever prayed to God? God, I want to know how fleeting I am. Make me know that. Make, Lord, I, I forget it all the time. Lord, make me know how fleeting I am. That's his prayer. Oh, Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. My lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Salah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth, does not know who will gather. Because Jesus takes this application of this parable, and he points it directly at you and me. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. We finally see the rich man's demonstration, how, how he is a demonstration for us. Again, the point isn't having riches is bad. The point is pursuing the riches of this world, pursuing the desire to get more, and not storing up riches towards God. You know, we, we live in a time where the homes have never been bigger, bank accounts have never been bigger, consumer spending has never been bigger, the goods that we can get that, that are marketed to us through our phones, through our TV, through our computers, through the radio, everywhere we turn, there's new fixes, solutions, improvements. And yet that desire for more, which is in my heart, will destroy us. I mean, Paul made it clear, no one who is covetous has an inheritance of the kingdom of God. John, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. James, you make yourself a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. And Jesus puts this out here as his second great warning to his disciples. The first, hypocrisy, a refusal to, to bear up under persecution with integrity. Second, wanting more. It'll destroy us. So what do you do? What do you do? Well, I think Jesus' warning is, is, is helpful. First, be aware. And maybe for some of you here this morning, this is a new thought. You've never even considered how destructive, deadly coveting is. Know it. Soak on it. Meditate on that. Don't quickly pass it by to the next commercial or TV show. And second, he actively tells us to be on our guard against it. And I, I think that might lead us then to ask some questions of ourselves. What, what do we do with more than we need? And, and by need, turn, turn, we'll close our time. Turn to 1 Timothy 6. And that's really the question. I'll throw some questions out for us to consider. But in 1 Timothy 6, in verse 6, The Apostle Paul says this. But godliness 
with contentment is great gain. And there's the combination you want, godliness and contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. There's, there's the threshold. What do I need? I need food, I need clothing. I think by implication, you need something to protect you from the elements. You're probably going to need some means to get to work. You know. But this is where the bar is set. It's not with food, clothing, and vacation. It's not with food, clothing, and fill in the next other thing. These are the bare things that are needed to, to do the things God has us to do. With these, we'll be content. And by that standard, I'm guessing just what every one of us has more than we need. So what do we do with it? The rich man's example shows us if we think that excess that we have exists for our pleasure, for our security, for our peace of mind, we're fools. And John Piper, in, in one of his books, asks a very, very, very convicting question, which I will pass on to you. He says this, When God blesses you financially so that you have more than you need, where does the thought come from that therefore I deserve to live at a better lifestyle? Where does that thought come from? It's the logic. I have more than I need, therefore, bigger house, better car. Where does that thought, not that that thought can't come from somewhere good, but I think we automatically assume that, well, of course, I'm going to give God his share. Of course, my giving will increase. So will my lifestyle. John Piper just challenges the notion, why would person A and person B, if person A makes twice what person B makes, and they're both Christians, why would person A assume God wants them to live with a better lifestyle? With food and clothing, we'll be content, Paul says. These are challenging questions. Very challenging questions. And, and trust me, I'm, I'm convicted by them as well. But we need to be on our guard against covetousness. We need to examine ourselves. We need to do an inventory. We need to go through how we're spending and arranging our lives and our wallets. Paul goes on to say this. If we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich, not those who are rich, those who desire, they want. You know, coveting can be a problem for both the wealthy and the poor. This whole discussion started with the younger brother who presumably has nothing. He's mad that his older brother has control of the estate. So he's a relatively poor person, or certainly not rich, coveting. And then the example we get is of the rich guy. This isn't a problem for one particular class of people, one particular economic group. You can be poor and desire to be rich, and you can be Rockefeller and want a little more as well. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know, I, I consistently see people move heaven and earth to make more money. It seems like there's an automatic given. If you can, you can get a better job, a better paying job, well, of course you take that. If that means you move your family across the country, so be it. And I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm not saying one shouldn't take a better job. I'm just saying I think the logic is, well, of course. Of course. I can get more. So of course I'm going to do that. I'm just challenging the assumption People will, will, will move heaven and earth to, to pursue making more money, promoting in their job. And what Jesus contrasts this with is being rich towards God. What we should be doing is outstripping our efforts to pursue promotion and money and job with our efforts to store up treasure in heaven. That, that's what Jesus says. And next week we'll look at this explicitly. In fact, turn, turn just the page. Well, my Bible is the next page, but still, 1 Timothy 6 to verse 17. Chapter 6 to verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, not to believe the materialist gospel, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and be rich in good works. That's the challenge. You're wondering what to do. What do I do if I find myself convicted? If I find myself, like, yeah, I want more. 
Begin to pour yourself. Think of ways you can be doing good works. Think of ways you can redirect your bank accounts to be generous. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that, which is truly life. There's nothing wrong with wanting treasure. Want the real treasure. Want the treasure that lasts. Jesus and Paul are not just saying deny yourself. They're saying don't deny yourself the real stuff for the vapor stuff. Don't deny yourself the real treasure for an inordinate desire for the monopoly money. So so what what do you do? We should begin to grow in our motivation and our zeal to do good works. We don't want to be left as those who are rich financially but not rich towards God. Jesus, though he was rich, became poor on our behalf. He took on the form of a servant. He suffered, became obedient, even to the point of death, death on a cross. On that cross, he bore our sins. God raised him from the dead three days later. And he calls on us to turn, turn from our other ways of living, turn from our loves of this world to him. We can be forgiven. You, you can you can be forgiven. You, you can be born again if you will trust in Jesus Christ, God's Son. But, but in following after Him, Jesus makes it clear we're to follow the same pattern. He surrendered His rights. We surrendered our rights. He became poor. We're willing to become poor. He poured Himself out for others. He didn't hold on to equality with God. He didn't grasp it and not refuse to let it go. He, he made Himself nothing. And in doing so, he received the name that's above every name. He did it for the joy that was set before him, the riches, if you will, that he got and has received. I'm going to call our worship team up for our closing song. I know this can be backwards, but our, our final song celebrates the truth that we've got to remember just how upside down things are. The world tells us you have riches and possessions, you're somebody. God says be rich towards me. So we're just saying no higher calling.